0: the Europe of the extremes, of the dictatorships, of the you know, comprehensive ethnic of genocide starts with Talat's regime in 1913.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Graham Almond-Pitts.
2: And I'm Ander Danak
1: World War I catalyzed the transition between the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. That seminal event remains the subject of vigorous academic debate and popular controversy. Our guest today, Hans-Lukas Kieser, professor at Australia's Newcastle University, has recently published a pioneering study of the period in the form of a biography of Talat Pasha, the Ottoman wartime interior minister, and the empire's grand vizier after 1917. His book casts Talat as the primary author of the Armenian genocide and the founder of modern Turkey. Welcome to
0: the podcast, Hans Lukas. Thank you for having me. It's
2: a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, And we want to begin by asking how you decided to write a political biography of Talat Pasha. Yeah, I think it
0: started when I was invited to give a talk uh, at University of Berlin, but in an auditorium next to the Hardenbergstraße, next to where Talat lived and was killed. And I had, of course, to prepare this talk, that was 2006, and then I started to be more interested to go deeper and, and, and decided at the latest, two years later, that, uh, that I'm sure I remember this because we had then organized a conference on biographies at the University of Zurich that I wanted to do this biography. I did not think it, that it would take so long. And how long did it take you? It took me, uh, let's say, if we really uh, measure the whole time, uh, that was uh, 12 uh, years. If we take now the most intensive uh, time of research and writing, it was five
2: years. And I always thought that it should be quite difficult to write a political biography of such a figure, especially like uh, one of the most prominent figures of CUP, Committee of Union and Progress. Given that the CUP archive is missing and it is difficult to access to personal family archives of Talat Pasha, it must have been challenging, I guess, to write a political biography of Talat Pasha. How did you deal with this challenge, and what particular sources were helpful for you in reconstructing? political persona of Talat
0: Pasha. You are entire, entirely right. Uh, that was uh, a real challenge uh, because you need a variety of eco documents uh, to, to write a biography. Let's say I had the chance that uh, three diaries uh, became available, uh, especially Javid Bey's diaries, so the finance minister and close collaborator of TALAD. His diaries became available for the first time in an uncensored, complete version in 2015 and the first volume already a, a bit uh, earlier. And uh, then I had also the, the very recently published uh, Diary of the Sheikh Islam, Mustafa Hayri, also a CUP member and, and quite close to Talat as well as the, the diary of Swiss uh, director of the Ottoman Regie which was part of the public debt. So he was a real insider of political Istanbul, so of the whole political life uh, already since Abdul Hamid. He was uh, nearly 70 years old already at the eve of the World War I. So these diaries allowed me, in a, in a way, to fill the, the colossal gap Uh, with regard to ego documents of Talat himself.
1: And you you talk about how Talat mirrored but also managed the political environment around him and especially the politics of the CUP. So how do we weigh the agency of Talat and these momentous events versus the uh, bigger historical trajectories, the environment around him?
0: It is really very important, I I think I insist enough in the book uh, to see Talat not as a detached or super elevated uh, dictator who just directs the affairs, but as I try to make understandable, he is like, that's a metaphor of course, a proactive hub, so who receives a lot of uh, impulses and is very capable, one must say, in processing these impulses. So in contrast, for example, to Atatürk, he was a talent in communication. He he was a communicative talent. He, He was very charming. That's what you can read at many places. As long as he mastered, dominated the communicative situation, he was wonderfully charming. And what sort of examples of
1: that did you find? Persuasive examples of Talat's charm of his his ability to communicate.
0: The German uh, general who defender of Gallipoli, who, who really was the chief of the military, Liman von Sanders. Uh, he writes this in his memories, uh, how charming he was. You can read this in correspondence of German diplomats. Uh, also the British uh, parliamentary, the deputy who finally also went to uh, to visit Talat just a few weeks before he was killed. He writes exactly this, uh, that Talat was a charming person. Or uh, the German journalist and and biographer, author who visited him in 1915 several times writes this. uh, Also, this man uh, was able, in a way, to look through the person. So he saw that the charm was an, an arm, was an instrument
1: So I'm curious about Talat's early life, we always think of Talat's association with Bulgaria, his parents were of course um, from what's now Bulgaria, but he was born in Edirne,
0: so how did his early life sort of shape his politics? I would say that there are two uh, important traits, Uh, one is uh, that his family had to flee when he was a a little child uh, to Istanbul during the the Russian-Turkish war uh, uh, in the late uh, 1870s. So this was uh, a typical, let's say, experience of late Ottoman Muslims uh, to feel this aggression of this power, especially from Russia, but also other uh, European powers, or then later, of course, uh, from the Balkan states. Uh, So feeling to be a victim, and the the necessity, in a way, to strike back. So that that was something that was part of the family experience. The other now specific experience uh, for Talat was to grow up, uh, in fact, without a father. Even if he knew the father uh, in his first years, then in in a way decisive years in in terms of pedagogy, especially for uh, male teenagers, uh, there was no father. Uh, We see him as a person who could not accept authority above him, especially at the school. So finally, uh, he must leave schools because uh, in no way uh, he submit himself to the discipline and he could not get uh, also any diploma. So he was a man without a diploma and it's quite astonishing that this uh, guy, was the most powerful guy uh, in the Ottoman Empire as long as it existed in the last years. But yeah, I would say these two uh, traits, so the feeling of victimization and the fatherlessness. He was victimized by who? You say he wanted to strike back.
1: To strike back against imperialism, to strike back against Christians. How early did he formulate sort of um, idea of an external enemy and an internal enemy?
0: Because we lack ego documents of this time, I cannot say much on this. Uh, and, and also, uh, you see it in my political biography that, that I concentrate then on the time where I have a richness of sources to describe him as a political person. So, what I said is uh, more what is very plausible, from and, and also is something that uh, is shared as the, the feeling of victimization, the muhajir feeling even if in his case they could return so they were just temporary muhajir but that is uh, certainly part because if you have just uh, to leave uh, in a short time because there is an attack on your town then that is something that in the family remains as a bitter experience so the, uh, and the other thing the, with the fatherlessness that is uh, also something that one can conclude very plausibly because we know certain elements of this life, uh, especially that he had a fight with his teacher and then they just threw him out uh, from school. So that this, and then together with what what came later, and and we see that uh, he is someone who, in contrast, for example, to Enver, did really not accept any prestige or authority above him. Also in his dealing with, let's say, El senior ministers or the war minister during the good time in early in, in January nineteen thirteen. enver is quite polite, not Talat. He's rude. He does the job. He's totally
2: focused. He's a committee. He's a revolutionist. In the book also you describe Talat Pasha as a revolutionist but as an imperial biased or imperially obsessed and far right wing revolutionist. I think it is quite new in historiography to define Talat or any other CUP leaders' political vision in these terms and to situate them as right-wing in the modern political spectrum. How does this framework provide us with a new way to understand the nature of the cup rule in the last decade of the ottoman empire particularly in relation to their war policy so
0: that's that's really a crucial um, uh, core element of my analysis uh, this uh, right-wing revolutionism that you can relate also in political theory or s- so and, and political sciences with uh, the conservative revolution even if i prefer right-wing uh, revolution uh, because they have a very strong modernist claim. If if we say conservative revolution, listeners would not get this. uh, Even if in, let's say, in social um, terms, they were quite conservative. So uh, certain hierarchies in society they wanted to preserve and they had not this vision of a society like uh, left-wing uh, revolutionists or Marxist revolutionists that would also change gender relations, finally. And so they lacked an, an universal framework. Uh, uh, so they, there was this uh, reference to the past, uh, to an imperial past, but also to, to the past of a turkdom. There were essentialists in fact, uh, references and and claims of identity, uh, not the universal, uh, which um, I would not so strongly now distinguish this right-wing and uh, left-wing revolution uh, with regard to violence, because both said yes to the use of violence. So Talat did not invent, uh, let's say, ethnic cleansing but what I claim, and that's a bold claim in this book, is that with the single party regime in which Talat was first the primus inter pares and that is at the eve of the First World War, because I revised the vision of the Triumvirate. Uh, uh, and then afterwards, so we can just talk then of a vi- Triumvirate in the, in the, uh, just before the war, when all three, Jemal, Enver, and Talat, are in the capital. But he is the Primus Inter Paris, afterwards, is very clearly the dominating figure. Uh, so the bold claim is that the Europe of the extremes, the Europe of comprehensive ethnic cleansing, so much far farther than what happened during the Balkan wars, so also what happened, uh, let's say, during Russia's conquest of Central Asia. Uh, so the Europe of the extremes of the dictatorships of the comprehensive at this cleansing of genocide starts with Talat's regime in 1913. So that's a bold claim that revises uh, the vision of the Europe of the extremes and dictatorships that normally uh, started with perhaps the Russian Revolution or then with the fascism, a little bit depending on the authors. So I very clearly put it a few years earlier because this was the first single-party regime at, at the head of an empire, a revolutionist committee at the head of the empire. So that was an innovation, uh, even if in a backward country, but Russia was, for example, also a relatively backward country, still it was a very high avant-garde in terms of state-making of, of the polity. And uh, I do not say in positive terms, but uh, still it was, uh, ahead of what followed then in other uh, places, and so it was right-wing, it was, for me, there is some proto-fascism, especially in Kalb's. so Talats, as I put it, very close collaborator for a decade. In this sense, it does also, in a way, revise uh, the vision of fascism in the first half of the 20th century in greater Europe, because the importance is to see greater Europe, including Russia, including the Ottoman Levant or Ottoman Turkey.
1: I'm curious what you would say about the role of contingency and the rise of proto-fascism that you're describing and in uh, the events leading up to the Armenian Genocide. You show some very interesting scenes in Talat's life. For instance, in 1909, when the government's looking for him, Talat is, is hidden by none other than the head of the Dashnaktsutyun, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation. Talat and other members of the CUP had very close relationships with uh, Armenian politicians, suggesting that their plan to rid the empire of Armenians hadn't fully coalesced until some time, indeed, after the
0: First World War had started. Uh, yeah, so, so the question is the contingency and how far Talat could perhaps have become a totally different political figure uh, if, if, let's say, the context would have developed differently. Yes, I am one of the historians who is not determinist. It's very important for me always to see the possibilities and to show where possible, not realized, ways not taken, but uh, still existing to a certain extent at certain moments of history. Because it's hard to balance your description of
1: historical forces building towards a particular event, towards a catastrophe. Also, with our understanding as historians, of course, that nothing's inevitable, right? That this, this, like any other major event in history, is contingent on particular historical factors. Didn't happen. Didn't have to happen exactly that way.
0: Yes. uh, So this is a reason. Also, even if we cannot discard and disregard the weight of history as it happened, we should not forget about the weight of this reality, real history. But I am of those who. Uh, look very critical at the notion of real history, or real history, in quotation marks. Uh, it's my m- mostly reduced history, to my sense, historians who look much too narrowly just on, on how po- power evolved and then afterwards uh, they say that's the rules of power and of history that obeys such rules. Yeah, so back to, to your uh, question. Yes, I could imagine a different Talat, and this uh, is also a reason why I, in contrast to quite uh, a number of colleagues, uh, very much emphasized the reform project uh, of 1913-14. I see this as a very important moment. Even if um, in my biography I present the readers um, at a, a, a turning point in Talat's life with the fall o- of uh, 1912, so after the coup d'etat uh, against the COP and the Balkan Wars, when he became a warmonger, I see him in a way um, because he is a hub also so what do you mean he's a hub he's a A hub in in the sense that he reacts to the impulses that he receives that's the metaphor we 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 were talking about so he is the strong hub a proactive hub often so that's the metaphor i use for his uh, position Uh, so i do not say he's a detached dictator but this is in a way a hub I hope that uh, metaphor is uh, is understandable and really also um, expressive for what I wanted to say. He could have evolved differently to, to another outcome, especially now going back to the reform project. If there would not have been the murder in Sarajevo, if there would not have been the July crisis, even if he did not like this reform project, he would have been obliged to realize it. He would perhaps have tried, like Sultan Abdul Hamid, to obstruct it. But in contrast to, to, to what was the case under Sultan Abdul Hamid, I mean, this was a much more solid reform project. So You mean in, in, in
2: and 1913 and In
0: 1913 1914. So they had very important competences. These uh, inspectors, so he would have uh, been uh, really forced, compelled to comply with these realities. And he was also a man of realities, more pragmatic than Enver, more pragmatic than Kemal Pasha. That's why he also very uh, soon adapted to the new situation after nineteen eighteen. So I can imagine, in, even in nineteen fourteen. Despite the turn that he t- his political life took, his political personality, the warmongery, he, he was a real warmonger because war was, was what helped him to again came back to power. Then the First World War was a great opportunity for him. I, I really insist on this. That's also a kind of a revision of quite a number of, uh, of, of books on the Ottoman World War. war. Uh, so still, still, I do not see a fixed personality, I see a man who wanted power because he, for example, he admired Germany, also he believed also in Germans, Germany's victory until the summer 1918. So, because of this, uh, in contrast to Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who who had a a very distance, of course, that was after the war, that was after defeat, so it was easy not to trust uh, Germany, but already before. So this is to say that, and Germany supported the reform project. So if there would not have been the July crisis, there would have been a really different outcome, I'm, I'm absolutely sure, and Talat would not have become a genocide.
1: So, so once again, uh, this is the Ottoman History Podcast, and we are talking to Hans-Lucas Kieser about his book, Talat Pasha, Father of Modern Turkey, and Architect of Genocide.
2: Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I want to actually ask a question about the title of the book, uh, which is Talat Pasha, father of modern Turkey and architect of genocide. I think that you connect Talat being the architect of genocide and the father of modern Turkey pretty well in the narrative of the book. But I guess there's also a word game here, Atatürk, which is Mustafa Kemal's surname, means father of the turks so why should we see talat as father of modern turkey who was talat Pasha in this regard
0: yes um, so it's important uh, to say that i do not state that he was the father i just say father a father yeah that's very important so i do in no way erase mustafa kemal so of course mustafa kemal is if we if we if he use the metaphor a father uh, political father of, uh, of post-Sodom and Turkey, but, but what is very important, and, and uh, I think that's the reason why this title makes uh, sense and, and is important, is to see that Ataturk's Turkey uh, started to be founded already in the decade before the Treaty of Lausanne and the foundation of the Republic of Turkey and that Talat was the decisive uh, designer in that time, political designer. As an interior minister he he was the man who, who transformed Anatolia already considerably towards being a so-called Turkjurtu, a Turkish national home, or a Turkish nation-state then finally. And the idea was, was that of an imperial nation-state, of course, for Talat, uh, including also then the rest of the, of the empire, like the modern European n- imperial nation-state.
1: So you're reading the Ottoman First World War as a victory in that sense, right? The Ottoman defeat, uh, yeah. if we look in Turkish mm, nationalist mm, terms.
0: succeeded. Exactly. So not, absolutely not a total defeat, uh, despite the loss of the empire, but a partial victory. That is the minimal goal, transforming Anatolia to a turk this succeeded. And it's Talat himself who says this, when in Berlin in September 1918, he realizes, because he realizes very late, that this great war is lost. But then he says to his advisor, Muitin in Birgen, at least we have uh, managed and succeeded to transform Anatolia.
2: In one of his articles, Mustafa Aksakal says that in popular Turkish memory, the Ottomans lost the war, but the Turks won it. So it's pretty much in this <laughs> line. Sure. Yes.
0: Yes, it's, uh, it's, in, it's in this line. And of course, uh, c- coming back to the, c- to the title, Father of uh, Turkey, it's also c- the reference to Gökalp's poem of September 1915, which really praises, elevates Talat, exalts him as the man without whom Turkey would be orphaned. So, he's
2: the father. <laughs> yeah. The Aggeokalp actually has a significant place in the book. And why did you give him such a prominent role in the political biography of Talat Pasha? What was like exact political personal relationship between Talat and Ziya Gökalp? Yeah, that's that's certain. Also, a major uh,
0: point of revision with regard to to what we have in historiography up to now is to to state that it was in fact this couple. Talat and Gökalp, who who were the most decisive on two different levels. So Gökalp generally was not involved in politics directly, except when it was about the reform of the religious institutions. That was then also the case when he went to to Ankara uh, under uh, Mustafa Kemal. So their relationship was uh, sitting together in all the Central Committee meetings and being in sympathy, one with the other. So Sia Gökalp was the influential guy in the committee in all questions regarding religion, the place of religion, and also then beyond, of course, the Central Committee in framing ideology. And that was largely by his poetry. So this, this was had really a large impact, at least on on the the educated elites who who were able to read it. So we see, for example, in in, in the diary of of the Sheikh Islam, who was uh, really jealous (laughs) because uh, not he, but Gökalb was the guy who won all discussions uh, when it was about religion. And we see also Talat and Gökalb conversing privately. That's uh, what we know from the daughter of Sia Gökalp. So it's it's a really close relationship. And one was on the political level, the strong person. The other was on the level of ideology, of of, uh, winning the masses, including also giving speeches, for example, for the, the commemoration of the conquest of Istanbul. So he is uh, he is also present, but is the strongest in terms of being seen as as a kind of a leader of a tarikat, as, as Mustafa Birgen says, the political order that includes really the intelligentsia, the whole intelligentsia that we see then also under Mustafa Kemal. So with Gökalp we see most clearly the continuation, because Gökalp himself went into Ankara and Javid writes in his diary. Now the COP is represented by its main, best, or or strongest representative, that is Siaga Kalpo, who is in Ankara. But he says this in a critical way. How how do do they not admit the reality? Of course, there were very strong diplomatical reasons not to admit publicly that we have very much to do with the COP. as former Young Turks. Uh, so
1: Zieglkup ends up in Ankara and Talat Pasha, of course, is in Berlin in exile when he's assassinated. So what's the legacy of Talat's assassination?
0: Uh, one uh, of my readers um, who also wrote a uh, uh, review then uh, said that wasn't it uh, just the assassination and the trial that made Talat an important person? I would uh, say that, yes, that was an important uh, moment, especially for Germany. But Talat was the, impo- the important political fi- figure well before. So it was not just because he was assassinated, became a martyr for, for the ones and few the other ones He was rightly killed. No, it was uh, so the assassination is uh, and the trial is extremely important internationally that uh, important laws that we see then after the Second World War uh, in position, including at the Nuremberg trial, and Raphael Lemkin also was very much observing this uh, trial of Talapasha. So Mm -hmm. it was an important moment for the international law, for the development of the notion of genocide. That is very clear, Raphael Lemkin states it uh, in his autobiography. It is a very important moment for Germany as it reveals the division in German society. So we see very clearly on the one side the Talat supporters who are angry about uh, what happened to this uh, respectful former Grand Vizier and loyal friend of Germany. And we see those who emphasize much more the the criminal side of Talat uh, that uh, should absolutely be put uh, to the forefront and and Germany should should revise its uh, its political uh, vision of the the First World War and and the aftermath and take a clear, explicit distance. Uh, to Talat, and that's on the one side, so that's the liberals, the the left-wing, the human rights people. On the other side, it's the right-wing, it's the strong patriots, the the nationalists, the radical nationalists, of course, the Nazis, so the Nazis are absolutely clear about being scandalized and totally taking the part of Talat.
2: Uh, how was his political legacy received in turkey i mean today there are a lot of schools street names or any other like public uh, places named after him but how was it in the early republican period how did the kemalist cadres receive his political legacy and relate to his political persona
0: yes uh, so ataturk was in uh Astonishingly good relationship with Talat, also co- comparatively of speaking, of course, and there was, uh, had a correspondence, an important correspondence with Talat, uh, uh, affirming him as a kind of representative of the movement for Anatolia that he led on the ground. Talat, the, the representative agitator for the same movement, say, goal, so the, the final establishment of a, of a sovereign Turkey, at least in Asia Minor. Talat in Berlin, so, and, and, and Talat fully accepting that Atatürk was the leader. But despite this, uh, you Atatürk, you know, was really a detached dictator. They did not accept anybody. Uh, Of any stature beside him. In contrast, in great contrast to Talat, you're saying here. In contrast to Talat, yeah, yeah, because for good reasons, because that was a committee, so it was a different understanding of making politics, different upcoming, and so Atatürk understood himself as the savior, then really the single figure. Which was in, in a way prefigured by Goethe's uh, writings already in the 1910s. Uh, the Savior figure, that's, uh, so is really a, a political messianism. Not only in the abstract sense with Turan, which is a very abstract messiah. So he also has writings in which he he prefigures the strong uh, man that leads. So the leader center, yeah. the that. Adalat is not fully endorsed by Gökalp in this sense, so that's interesting, but it's another topic. So Atatürk would never have uh, supported Talat beside him, even if, in contrast to other CUP luminaries, he respected Talat. At one point he even said, we have built on Talat's shoulders. That's at least what Ernst Jäck writes in, in in his book. Uh, so, the legacy uh, in Atatürk Times is absolutely not mentioned except for this one or perhaps a few other times, but uh, <laughs> in fact, generally, it is silenced because uh, it was Kemal, Mustafa Kemal, who built up a new, totally new state. Hour zero, 1919, Samsun. So, that's the Kemalist narrative. So it came back, of course, after the death of Atatürk and it, it came back with the corpse, with the body, with the, with the pomp- <coughs> pompous uh, the, uh, funeral um, during World War War from Hitler's Berlin to Inanus, to, um, uh, Turkey, also Istanbul in, in this case. And um, then uh, this was just the first step afterwards, the publication of all these uh, Young Turk Memoirs, including Talat's Memoir, which is uh, largely an apology yeah, for what he did uh, with the Armenians. Uh, so then he came back um, and um, he was uh, yeah for, for quite, uh, I would say, in general he is seen as a good patriot, opposed by left-wing, that's the interesting, nationalists, so Perincek is an example, an early example, and of course, by by, by by the right wing. Uh, anyway, yeah. So he was quite largely accepted, and uh, all the names of streets, of mosques, uh, and so on, uh, are just any, uh, is, are just a proof of, of this uh, then of this legacy that became visible.
1: So I, I want to say congratulations on this piece of scholarship that not only changes how we understand uh, World War One in the Middle East but uh, world history in, in, in the 20th century. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, Hans Lucas.
0: I thank you. You're very welcome. It was
1: good to talk. We hope you'll join us again, and we'll hope uh, you, dear listeners, will tune in uh, to future episodes. Thank you very much.